0: Org. Enjoy. Welcome to the Society for the History of Childhood and Youth podcast. I am Johanna Sjöld, professor at the Child Studies Unit at Linköping University in Sweden. And I'm sitting here with my colleague, Professor Bengt Sandin, whose book Schooling and State Formation in Early Modern Sweden will be the subject for our discussion today. It was published in 2020 in the Palgrave Series Studies in the History of Childhood. Welcome Bengt. Thank you. Bent is a longtime member and a former president of the Society for the History of Childhood and Youth. And during his career, he has researched a great diversity of topics, spanning from abortion to children's political representation and the right to vote. From parental education to the state's responsibility for historical institutional child abuse. A red thread in Bengt's publications, not only in this particular book, is the question of governance in relation to children. From the governance of cities, governance through schools, and child rights governance. Moreover, his research covers a time span that is unique and impressive. His study spans from the 16th century up to our current times. And one great achievement in Bengt's work is that he was one of the first scholars to bridge the gap between the history of childhood and the history of education. He did this in his PhD dissertation, published in 1986, which has inspired many of us Nordic-speaking historians of childhood and education. And now, Bengt, three decades later, you return to your dissertation, you translated it, and you have rewrote it for an international English-speaking audience. How did you come up with this idea, and what do you think an international audience can learn from reading a book on schooling and state formation in early modern Sweden?
1: Well, how did I come up with that idea? Well, I've been being a part of the circus of conferences and uh, meeting people for all these years and studying the history of childhood and uh, I sensed in a sense that what I found out in this material was something unique, a unique story about children on the streets and interaction between different social classes and in a nation that transformed tremendously during these three or four centuries that I'm looking at, and uh, that the material that I found about children in these urban environments in in Sweden was so different than in many other countries. As it turns out, it was not so different in reality. It is a story there that can be kind of seen also in other nations, Mm. but I found that that story was not really accessible in English, more than in little snippets in other people's works and snippets that i done in English and stuff like that. So it's not that I felt that the, the world was in need of my study, but I felt <laughs> compelled in a sense to, I wanted to share that uh, in its full extension with all the full richness of details and information about family, about state building, about urban development, about different school systems and conflict between schools and all this kind of the richness of what goes on mm. in in the in the in the urban Sweden during this time and all the fun stories and the strange things that happens, which kind of enticed me all the time and kept me coming back to this all the time. It was as if it as if I couldn't let the story just rest without having to being able to tell it in English. Mm.
0: And in the introduction, you make a point about that Sweden was a military power in Europe from the early 17th century up to the early 18th century. And why is this important in order to understand the historical development of childhood in Sweden?
1: Well, your point there is is important because it, it is really about the complexity of the changes that goes on. And Sweden is a major military power, but it's a major military power on a very small and meager population mm-hmm. base and also a meager economic base. Mm-hmm. So it it forces a development which is fairly unique in terms of administrative, new administrative structures, new political structures, and a creation and a formation of state and state control of society, which also involves, for the first time, making children actually visible, visible in the eye of the power. Mm. Because the knowledge of the children of the catechism and their integration into society became a primary objective of much of the efforts of the state to keep the nation together. It was directed at the rest of the population too, but Mm -hmm. children uh, became, and their socialization became central for the thinking about both the Lutheran church, but also the governance of the society, making sure that you could reinforce the coherence and the stability of the social structure around certain norms and values. Hmm. which naturally then also in a sense came into conflict with the reality of the la- the lived life of children and families because uh, because it was not like people all lived in stable families hmm. in households and went to work together and work and socialized according uh, hmm. in a very stable situation it was very fluid and hmm. it was people was demoted or promoted and social people moved up in the hierarchy and a lot of people lived without families and a lot of people actually did not live in households etc etc so the socialization of children in was pretty precarious it wasn't Mm. so simple and so, so straightforward and it was basically i mean the socialization of children was a worry Mm. For the government, also, and and the government in Sweden was kind of they were worrying about the battlefields of Germany, but they also were worrying about the children and the women running around in the streets of Stockholm mm. and and uh, making havoc and not following the orders, not following the the rules and regulations of the religious government, and not about uh, well running around in the nights, uh, robbing people, etc., etc. Mm. So it's it's a pretty fluent, but also conflict-ridden system that strives to create consensus and order and stuff like that. So, it's mm. a conflict between order and disorder, which kind of mm. flows through this history and comes out in different forms in, in the urban settings and different forms in the rural settings, but also... Differently during different periods of the time that I study. Because some of the periods here is is very, I mean, there's great famines, there are diseases, there are, are, uh, uh, well, political turmoils Mm. and stuff like that. So the consequence of this kind of conflict-ridden affluent society tends to be different in different periods of this Mm. that, that I've been studying.
0: So and we will return to some of these issues, especially around governance later on in our talk, but I thought that just to briefly summarize for those who haven't yet read this book, but I really think they should. So, what you do in this book is taking the reader on a journey through the different school systems that have operated in Sweden in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And you look for what kind of rationals that have governed why children go to school which children that have been considered for which kinds of schools, and how children and the families themselves utilize the schools. But is this a valid description of what you do in your book, or how would you describe the content?
1: Well, I mean, it's a valid description in short sentences, <laughs> yes, uh, given, given the context. Uh, so I can accept that. I would like to, effort, uh, to emphasize that for me, this is not a history of education. Mm. For me, this is a history of childhood. Mm. And I use education as a prism to understand the role of childhood and the character of the childhood that the children had that grew up during this period of time. Uh, and I did that very consciously in the sense that I, when I started working with this, I always felt... A little bit strange by the history of childhood, Uh, the history—sorry, the history of education Mm -hmm. uh, and the way it conceptualized the history of education or education as the the only kind of entity that you look at. Mm -hmm. And what I, when I think, then you think, look at the history of childhood. You have to realize that childhood is influenced by state building. It's influenced by urbanization. It's influenced by uh, family and family history. It's influenced by systems of governance. Uh, it's system, uh, uh, cultural of parties and festivities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's actually so much more, and you tend to neglect that complexity when you look at history of education as as the thing that defines childhood. I use history of education as a prism to see it, but also to use it as a tool to discover all these other contexts that defines what a childhood is at the time. Mm. That's one of the aspects. Another aspect is actually also that I was very dissatisfied, and I'm still dissatisfied, with the way the... Marxist and marxist explanations about the role of education, mm-hmm. uh, how it was defined. I was very critical against the, the marxist understanding of school only as a system of control, Yes, uh, mm-hmm. because I think it's important to understand, you have to explain also, if it is a system of control, why do children go to school if mm-hmm. it is only a system of control? Uh, and what does it mean for the parents? And I thought that by exploiting and ex- exploring what the children, how they looked and understood what their education was and what it meant to them, you could suddenly understand perhaps they went to school for other reasons than the one that was defined by the authorities. Mm. I did not neglect the fact that school could be an instrument of control, but you have to also understand the rationality of those who were supposedly controlled and how they perhaps even used the educational system for their own purposes mm. to develop identities or perhaps provide for themselves. And for me, it was a great revelation when I suddenly realized that the children that went to school during the 17th century, they completely disregarded all the rationales of the authorities, but they used it very successfully To provide for themselves. And the school in itself was used for getting food, raising money, uh, providing for the family. Mm. And in fact, it filled a role in many ways as later on child labor would fill for the families and for the children. So this complexity also made me question some of the more liberal or Whiggish interpretation of. The educational system mm-hmm. as something that is an avenue for individual success and Id- individuals' uh, aspirations to better themselves in society uh, and become kind of a part of part of social so, a social movement and a mm-hmm. social climbing and stuff like that, or or. Uh, democratization of society and because it actually turns out that the children and the families used to, used the schools for a, in a much more complex way than is really uh, kind of accommodated by those that kind of explanations mm-hmm. so i was looking for and trying to find uh, explanations that was not neither based on the consensus or the conflict oriented historians and tried to combine those aspects into a different way. And that's why I looked for Gramsci and I looked for Foucault and I looked for other explanations. Uh, and in this kind of reworking of the book, I was kind of getting more interested in, in the spatial aspect mm-hmm. of where does things happen? What does it matter where it happens? Does it is it in an urban environment or in a in a uh, rural environment or is it uh, in the harbors, or is it in the homes, or in the household? And, and I mean, where does all this interaction between different classes take place? Mm. And how do, they, how do that configure the ability to kind of live out identities and to create possibilities to survive and, and whatnot? And all mm. these other kind of things that is not covered by the traditional theoretical uh, ambitions.
0: So now you're also turning to spatiality and the importance of space uh, that you write about in your book. And I thought we should ponder a little bit around the central concepts of this book. And as I see it, separation is a central concept, even though you don't outline it as a specific concept in the introduction. But then we have space, as you just mentioned. We have governance that you also have talked about. We have child perspective perspective. And defocusing children. And I thought we could talk about these concepts. Great. And they can guide us through the book. So, if we start with separation, because I think the book is very much characterized by the concept of separation. The book evolves around the separation of children from adults, separation of children of different classes from each other, separation of boys from girls, and the making of childhood as a separate sphere from adulthood through schooling in the upper classes during the 16th and 17th centuries, is one of Philippe Ariès' main points in his classical work, The Centuries of Childhood. And when I read your book, I wonder if you agree agree with Ariès that the main thing that happened was the separation of childhood from adulthood, or was it the separation of classes during the 17th century? Uh, is it the separation of children from adults that is the main thing that happens, or is it the separation of children from different classes from each other?
1: Well, that, that is a, a good point and an interesting point. Uh, I think that, that uh, when I started, uh, there was a great trend within the historical profession, and which influenced me a lot, where everybody was very critical against Philippe Ariès. <laughs> I mean, everybody was very inspired by him, but also very critical. So I was naturally also very critical because I was a part of the critical generation there. So I questioned everything he said uh, and uh, did not really indulge in trying to relate my work to his. Mm. But I do think that in terms of his discussion about the education, I think that there's a lot to say for what he argues around the way the the school system uh, in many ways, tended to, identi- to identify children with schooling and education. In itself, gave childhood a specific identity, mm. uh, so which separated it from the adults uh, in theory, but in reality, during that time, uh, that did not exclude older persons. Mm. Because in reality, also, older persons also went to school and there was no kind of age limit for the educational system. I mean, if you came in as an adult uh, and came to Sweden and you were for a foreign, by a foreign kind of background or a foreign religious background, you were immediately perhaps put put into one of these schools and you went to schools together with children that might be 7, 8, 15. Twenty. So when you look through all the records, there, I mean, mm-hmm. age is something that is kind of negotiable in terms of the, the whether you go to school or not. Mm-hmm. So the ones, the the population in school, they could be any age basically. So it is a separation which separates the period when you get education as a separate period in your life. But it doesn't mean it does have to be particularly oriented towards the children, what we call children today. No. But so that with that I would say that the whole idea here is, is that there is an oscillation between separation and integration. Mm-hmm. And what you could see over the time that they do struggle with the fact should how should you organize the children in the schools according to maturity and competence and ability mm. and how should that be done or should they read together with people with children with had other competences and stuff like that
2: mm.
1: so and i would say that the whole notion about whether you should separate or integrate it is a thing that that comes back during this whole period i mean the 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 discussion for example about street children and their participation in the burial procession which mm. i spent a lot of time trying to understand why do school children spend so much time participating in burial procession in the urban environments during this period of time I and mean,
0: what is burial pr- procession can you explain to you?
1: Well, basically, it's the procession whereby Mm. the corpse is the deceased body, the Mm. body is carried from the home to the church. Mm. And there is a procession there, which uh, in Catholic times was supposed to be fairly extensive, uh, and uh, which, where you also had a procession that was to mimic, in a sense, a Roman tradition where there was. Kind of, You threw out money, or the, in their conception, a Roman tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you threw out money to the poor, you showed your gratitude for the grace that God has given you by donating money to the poor, and you should do that by kind of personally distributing money. So, there's a situation where actually sometimes the kings would coin money for the occasion. It's it's münzen uh, they threw out the the money and,
0: and there were children on the street and picking the chi- those money
1: up and the children was the children of the poor was picking up the money but then uh-huh. also children were participating together with other parts of the of the social structure I mean there would be the mayor if it's a high it's a noble being being. There will be the noble family, there will be parts from his old regiment, there will be parts from uh, the clergy, different parts of the clergy, mm-hmm. and school children and university students. So basically, there's a whole, the whole social structure is displayed in a procession which brings the corpse from the home to the church. Mm. And children participated in that. And it's clearly so that the Lutheran Church, after Reformation, wanted to keep this. They did not want to get rid of it. So, it becomes a central aspect of the Lutheran tradition of doing that. But it was not always popular because it was conflict-ridden, and and, uh, people started fighting. People started fighting over the money. It was not a particularly ordered situation, Mm. very much in contrast to the imagery that you find when you present the images of this. I mean, <laughs> these are propaganda pieces which the mm. government kind of uh, printed up and showed off for the, for the pop for, for, to send out to Europe and show how grand grand uh, ceremonies we had in Sweden. So it's mm. a part of this, this propaganda war that went on during this period of time. And uh, I mean, children in Stockholm during the mid 1600s of the 17th century, participated in burial possession sometimes up to 300 times a year, which meant that they spent a lot of time doing this. Mm -hmm. And that was a central source of income, not only for the church and for the schools, but also for the individual school children, And that's why they went to school. So at times when they did not get this kind of participation, they did not come to school. Mm -hmm. And when the government started to regulate it and... First, the clergy protested because they thought it was a great revenue. And mm. they said, okay, we, 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 don't, we, we think this is problematic and we can understand why you need to regulate it. But this is a central income for us, so we can't just do away with it. Mm. So we have to keep it. But perhaps you can outlaw the running priests that come sneak in and try to get part of the money because, because they're taking part of us. I mean, they wanted non-promoted Clergy not to be part of it it's a little bit in the <laughs> academia too, not promoted people are not welcome in the situation so so anyway uh, the children there was a problem mm. uh, to a great extent, and you could see this as a part of a transformation between the separation of the the large and the small cultural tradition that the way Peter Burke talks about yeah uh, because and this I mean you couldn't you perhaps shouldn't pull that analogy too far, but there is clearly a situation where the upper classes used to share the street with the population, uh, and also some of these popular events with the population. And they are trying to withdraw from that Mm. and refrain from participating with the population in the streets. So, here
0: is the separation. In space.
1: Exactly. Here yeah. is a separation in space and yeah. also a social separation mm-hmm. between them, uh, which then, is interestingly enough, that that takes place at the same time as the Lutheran church puts great emphasis on that each individual should share something else in common. Mm-hmm. That is the catechism of Luther. Everybody should be able to, with their own eyes, read the Word of God. hmm so that you could say that the Lutheran church tried to create a new normative shared value structure, that of the catechism or the Lutheran, uh, and the Lutheran faith, in a sense. So it's interestingly enough that when the new church law comes out in 1686, it says on one time we should prohibit two big processions, but everybody should read the Catechism and be <laughs> able to present their knowledge in a public interrogation in the church. Mm. So separation and integration plays out it's, it's, it's two mm-hmm. phenomena that are parallel, but they naturally on, are based on different power structure, mm. because this is also naturally a way for the church to establish this kind of normative structure at the same time as the king says. The church has no independent uh, political power. They're all subservient under the state. Mm-hmm. So that's also a sign of this church being a part of the s- state mm-hmm. governance. And in the midst of everything, we see the children, mm-hmm. the ones that are supposed to be perhaps not participating in street processions, but should be interrogated and and uh, show and display their knowledge of the catechism at mm. these crucial moments before confirmation and stuff like that.
0: Mm. So, so now, now now, we have evolved both around separation, but also around space. And I, I, I thought that you maybe could explain to the listeners why space is so important to understand uh, the history of children and childhood. Why is speciality such an important concept well
1: I think basically uh, speciality is the the very essence of childhood mm-hmm. uh, I mean childhood is played out uh, more important than age well as mm-hmm. I suppose you could even say that space is is the defining characteristic of what what childhood is I mean it plays out in it so and and basically also you could say that if you If you are in an older age, but you are not married, you live in a household, uh, you would today be regarded as an adult, Mm. but you are at that time not regarded as an adult because you don't have that social status, as you would uh, because you're not married and you're working and doing the same kind of chores. Uh, as children would do then you're technically a child mm. so space is very important for defining defining uh, the normality and the role of children also in relationship to to the the role of children in in a certain rural environment could be such that they basically lived and acted as adults and worked as adults on particular uh, and then they would be in reality regarded as adultist, mm-hmm. uh, while the same children in an urban environment that basically are not kind of integrated in that kind of thing, uh, they would be looked upon as childish, and their mm-hmm. behavior looked upon as childish mm-hmm. and defined as such. So space is very, not. I mean, it's not independently important, but it's together with other aspects centrally, uh, I mean, important to define what 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 uh, what childhood really is all about,
0: mm. and I think, well, your your book now is centralizing around schooling and uh, and what's happening in in the cities. Even though I know you comment up on the countryside, but do do you think that you would have arrived at other conclusions if you had focused on on the countryside instead of focusing on cities? If you had excluded the cities what what would have been then
1: well i i will i quite sure i'm quite sure had i looked at the countryside i would have seen other things that mm-hmm. i that i don't notice now i mean uh, i mean later research has also that i haven't been able to integrate in the book actually it came out while i was finishing it showed for example the the great the great variation of the teachers in the countryside mm-hmm. and how many different actors agents that actually acted as teachers in the countryside for children. Mm. So, uh, and I might have been able to kind of do something more of that in relationship to what our childhood was realized than also. So, I'm quite sure that that. On the other hand, I would argue that we tend to look at these countryside, these, these countries at this period as being very rural because mm-hmm. it's predominantly rural society. And that means that we sometimes tends to disregard the enormous importance of the cities, mm-hmm. culturally and socially and politically, uh, for the upholding the political structure, of uh, transforming social processes that took place in the cities, displaying power. One of my big aspects here is actually how power is both displayed and negotiated in the mm-hmm. streets, in the interaction between children and, and adults, and and uh, and uh, the different social social classes, in the streets, and that was very central, and that played a role for the whole so, so for the whole development at at the time. So sometimes when you say, "Well, these are primarily rural societies," mm-hmm. and we you have to look at the rules because that's important. I totally disagree. Dis- Disagree with that because I basically think that you have to look at the interaction between the cities and uh, as as the nucleus of change and nucleus of political power mm-hmm. at the time.
0: Mm. Interesting. Um, and one of the main points of your book, which is outlined actually in the title, is that schooling was a tool for state formation. And the book, as you said previously, it rests upon Michel Foucault's work on governance and. Through surveillance and social control, but that you also challenge the social control thesis by looking at how children and parents from the lower classes use the schools and how schooling became an aspect of family formation. So, you have already gave us, given us some examples of how the lower classes use the schools for their own means, but could you, if you have to, Respond to that question. How how did they use schools for their own means?
1: Well, first of all, you could see that that uh, the parents sent their school their children to school as a way of of childcare. I mean, basically, they sent their children to schools because when they were in school, they were out of danger for other things. It's it's uh, basically physical childcare but they also did it basically because by sending the, them children to schools they were getting a certain means of support mm. they would initially get money for their participating in the church processions and uh, the burial processions but they would also walk around on the walk around at at easter and christmas and sing songs at the doors and stuff like that and get Paid for it. Ironically, sometimes you could see that the children probably get better paid if they sang not so religious songs, <laughs> and and uh, so which sometimes the government tried to to regulate and say mm-hmm. they were not allowed to sing songs that was uh, raising problems of different kinds, ab- abusive songs and stuff like that. So they got a means of support, and it was a um, uh, childcare. And you could see that the parents sometimes took the children or the children went out of school themselves as soon as they had a chance to get better pay somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes they complain about that. Uh, they say, for example, that uh, he's no longer coming to school. He's sitting by the castle and selling shoe bags and singing songs
2: mm-hmm.
1: and stuff like that. So, And they said and And they said, "Complain about that the parents d- did not pick out the the grades or the information about the success of the children in schools and stuff like that." So that kind of information comes back over and over again, mm. the fact that the parents and the children completely disregarded the kind of the the, 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 the knowledge aspect of of the education that they would get. Mm. And you could also see if i I track the number of children that spend a long time in school Mm -hmm. and those who spend a short time in school. And you can see a great variation there. A whole number of children spent a very short time in school. Mm -hmm. They went to school, uh, and they kind of went off to school, and they went to school during the winter season when it was cold and it was difficult to work, and then during the summer season, they would go to the building sites and help out there and work there, and then during the winter, they would come back to school. Mm Which then naturally the teachers and we all know how we think about how, how children should have the education they should <laughs> stay in their education in the educational eye all the time uh, so this was looked upon with a frown from from the educators at the time mm. uh, but it's clearly that this was a system that was not clearly kind of they could not control the children
2: mm.
1: basically and uh, and uh, And the education there in many ways played a similar role as orphanages and and Mm -hmm. other kind of childcare institutions. Mm -hmm. But you could say that perhaps the parents had a little bit more control of these children uh, than they would have had they turned the children over through the orphanages. Mm -hmm. And also you could also say in a sense that in many cases you could say that some of these parents probably did not have much control of their children. Mm. Uh, But the children... Took advantage of the the kind of the leeway there, and these are also parents that when I went through and checked which the children were, I mean, it turns out that that the schools were populated by virtually the lowest classes mm-hmm. of society, and it was primarily to great well, not not primarily, but it was primarily the lowest class of uh, society, and those children from better of societies, they tended all to be widowed. Yeah. So it was single women that placed their children in school because it helped them to provide for mm-hmm. themselves.
0: And that m- makes us able to see that the school is a, a kind of poorhouse institution in a way. Or it is, yeah. yeah.
1: It's a, And I would say it's a social welfare aspect. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to basically understand that education here is growing out of a social welfare need of mm. society rather than what we would define as the kind of the development of, of the knowledges and competences and stuff like that. Mm. Even though the government sometimes says we need better people for the government. And you could also see that there is a small fraction of children that went to see schools that spend a long time in school.
0: Mm-hmm. And sometimes... And who were they?
1: And they are actually from all... All I mean, you can find them basically. It's interesting enough from f- that they, they could come from the poorest situations, but they would also come from the better-off situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can also see that they get some of them actually get a long school education, and some of these you could identify actually goes on to further education or to become informers in better class society families and stuff like that. So, which points to the complexity. Of the institution, mm. it doesn't only fill one role, it fills many roles mm-hmm. for both for the for the children and for the for the families and for the government in a sense.
0: Mm. So if we we now turn away from how how parents and children used school for themselves, when it comes to surveillance in this the Swedish state had a special instrument for this through the local churches namely the so-called household exam. Uh, Could you explain what this was and whether household exams were prevalent in other countries as well?
1: Well, you do have household exams in other countries, like in in, uh, other Protestant countries, Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, in Germany, uh, with different kind of applications and with different, well, not fully consequent, the same way it was in, in this kind of very... Tightly controlled society in Sweden. I mean, the different the different states or parts of Germany had it in different ways, uh, and Scotland had it, which mm. also had a Puritan streak. Uh, so you could you do find it in and parts of Britain at the time. And what is it really? Well, basically, it is a system whereby uh, the church controls that the children have well, actually, the household yeah. have lived up to its educational obligation mm. to teach all members of the household, but particularly the children, to to incorporate the and learn the 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 catechism, primarily mm. the small catechism that that Luther created in the late late uh, 16th century, mm. and then was kind of applied. In Sweden, as a part of the mobilization of the country during the great period of the power, the great power period, when you really wanted to mobilize everybody to be, as, as the king said when he turned to the clergy uh, when he went off to Germany, he said, Turn your parishioners' heart towards me, mm. make them believe in what I, my mission now. And he went off to war and, and, uh, and put the whole nation into a strong. I mean, strong social pressure Mm. and extracted a huge amount of soldiers to go out and fight in the war. So, it is a part of of the social control developed by the church at the time. Mm. And uh, it went hand in hand with a much more diligent organization of uh, making sure that people lived up to the different... uh, The different commandments uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of that and and, uh, erudicting and getting rid of all out of wedlock births and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So you can also see that actually the out of wedlock births that was higher in the beginning of the 17th, the 16th, well, 17th century, it was much lower towards the end because the social control became much, much more central. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, so this is a part of a kind of a regimentation you could say mm-hmm. of the children and uh, the household and the interrogation of them and you created a kind of a hierarchical system of control where the parents are supposed to teach the children the teaching of the parents are controlled by the local clergy the local clergy is controlled by the by the dean mm. the dean is controlled by the bishop and the bishop is controlled by the archbishop <laughs> To the point where actually one of the travelers in Sweden, one of the visitors from Britain, Britain, uh, Bulstrode Whitelock, he, he commented to the Swedish Swedish archbishop, he said, I thought the Reformation was all about getting rid of hierarchy? <laughs> and the Swedish bishop, Linnaeus, he said, well, maybe so in Britain, but in Sweden we need order for political reasons.
2: Mm.
1: So this was a system of kind of hierarchical control that was established, which then kind of continued up during the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, uh, where you could see how this system that was built up became a central instrument in the 1686 church law, but then was renewed over and over again during the 1700s and changed a little bit form because it, it... Uh, the social transformation, the growth of population, the growth of a proletarian class had to adopt to new situations and you kind of reintroduced confirmation in a Lutheran way. Mm -hmm. I mean, confirmation was originally kind of, they got rid of it during the Reformation, but Mm -hmm. then they reintroduced it as a part of the pietist uh, kind of movement during the 1700s which then also meant that you started saying, well, perhaps we need a public interrogation and display of the knowledge of the young generation before they move out into becoming mm. uh, workers and whatever. So, so confirmation is- was introduced, reintroduced, basically, but then as a public interrogation at a mature age, not the confirmation that the, the papist was doing.
0: Okay, so so because I, I was wondering... How household exams, and now you take up confirmation as well, what does that has to do with the history of children and childhood? But to some extent, you you answered that already, but... If you just take that question.
1: Well, it's, it's clearly, I mean, it, the household exams in itself, first of all, it, it, it's an example of that the government saw the child, mm-hmm. saw the child as an entity of learning, an mm-hmm. entity of political religious learning. So, mm-hmm. it kind of, you could say that the household exam is an expression of the that the state or the governance sees the child. Mm-hmm. The child becomes visible in history as an individual Mm. in the household. And then that that kind of transforms the notion of childhood, because Mm. then the question is, does it end at the year of 12 or at 14? Or does it mean that it's confirmation at 14? Well, that's the time when you're supposed to move out of your household into a new household. And you have to have certain knowledges before you do that. Mm. You have to have a proof for that you know the catechism. Mm. And then at this time during the late during the 1700s it becomes important to know and the, and the pietists introduced the notion of that you don't only know the catechism but you also understand the catechism. Mm-hmm. So and that comes out also in the catechism explanations mm. because explaining at the catechism, like the Swedish bishops would like try to do also involved not only describing that you know it Mm. uh, and with these other things, but you also understand what Stabilius, for example, have explained. Mm. It's
0: another kind of knowledge. It's another kind of
1: knowledge, a more kind of Mm. active knowledge that you were able to have independently uh, as an individual. A great example is, for example, that... that, uh, the commandment that prohibits you to steal,
2: mm-hmm.
1: well, during the late 1700s, the explanation included not only that you took somebody else's property, but stealing would also be not working hard for your employer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That signals to us a, a social organization where there are laborers that could be lazy or hard working. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes, for example, the, the, the commandments against uh, adultery, which could be being having lust to your neighbor's wife. Mm. But it could also be negotiating marriage with someone outside your own social circles. Mm. If not, as I said, for important political reasons. And the the latter thing there means basically that they allowed, for example, the king to marry below the royal status, mm. because otherwise he would never get married because no. they have to marry somebody else, right? <laughs> but that that the youth should not start negotiating marriage without the consent of their parents.
2: Mm.
1: So that's examples of the that this whole notion Transforms during this uh, during the different periods and have different meanings during the different periods. The character, the control is different, which mm-hmm. also indicate the fact that youth were active mm-hmm. and actually negotiated marriage and and uh, without the consent of the parents. So so basically, this mm-hmm. also shows the fact that these people are not passive, passively receiving or only being controlled, and that's what you see all through this history, mm-hmm. the fact that, that uh, the population reacts and the youth reacts, and there is futile attempts to establish a control system that actually works as a control mm-hmm. system.
2: Mm.
1: So that's a great dynamics, which I think it comes out really clear, which mm. also plays out in relationship between the different schools, organizations, and which children should be in which school, and should Mm -hmm. we have, can the working class kids go in the same school as the middle class, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Mm. So so now we have gone through the concepts of separation, we have discussed the concept of space and spatiality, and governance. Uh, But I thought we should turn to defocusing children and child perspective, because I think Many listeners are interested in those concepts. And in the book, and now I quote, um, you say that you, the book intends to be a history of childhood using education as a focal point, end quote, but you also set out to take a child perspective and at the same time, defocusing children. Can you explain what defocusing children means why, and why we sometimes as historians of children and childhood need to defocus children?
1: Well, I think sometimes the historians of children and childhood spend too much his too much time looking at children and childhood <laughs> i mean its it's an irony there in a sense that that sometimes by looking too close at the object that we're studying, we tend to uh, lose sight of the mm-hmm. context that can explain why the thing that we're studying changes mm-hmm. uh, and I do think it is important for us to to take a wider perspective, uh, I mean, sometimes somebody gave me a compliment and said, uh, "You're trying to write l'histoire totale." Yeah, and I think, uh, and I think that yes, I would like to do that. I would like to see uh, a lot of things going on at the same time and trying to find out what goes on at the same time and how they interact, without really focusing on very tightly on explanation that this leads to that, etc. I would like to see the context and also understand the complexity, and thereby also understanding the complexity of the role of of uh, of education, but also the role of of children and childhood. Mm. So I can use education as a prism, but my point is there not really to understand the history of education. My role is to understand the history of childhood, and it's it's. A relationship to how the systems of uh, surveillance for example was controlled or the how governance was organized and how the protests of the governments took place how the cultural frames changed how the understanding of of different classes and their educational needs changed and whether they could be roomed in the same kind of institutions to go back to space. The whole notion of a school is also a spatial construct. Mm. I mean, do you have one school for the lower-class children, one school for the for the middle-class children, and another school for the upper-class children? Is that a valid concept? Mm. And, and can they be in the same school towards the end of the uh, 1700 is clearly so that 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 the educational structure that was kind of created in the 17th century was challenged by the social change. There was more and more children uh, in destitute situation and you created more and more different kind of special schools for catechist schools, uh, slide schools, schools. Uh, uh, afternoon schools, and you were thinking about should we, should the schools be reaching a lot of children, making sure that they only spend a little time every day in school, or should be the full-day school and thereby only reaching a few kids, but mm. on the other hand, keeping them out of harm's way a whole day. Mm. So they have a lot of difficult choices to make, but it's clearly thing. So the schools kind of, there was a whole flora of mm. different schools that was created, which also then created a dynamic between the different kind of schools that was created. And the question was, which schools should room the working class kids? And and uh, since the working class kids spend a lot of time with the destitute children, I mean, they were not really working class, they're all kinds of, of kind of uh, lumpen proletariat, the Marxist mm. would say. Uh, and they're not really class conscious or have a class identity in any way, uh, that would come much later. But they would basically go in a school that also the middle class wanted to go to.
2: Mm.
1: And the middle class sometimes even sent their kids to orphanages because in some of the orphanages you actually taught both Latin and Greek mm. because the teachers thought it was fun to do it. So so there's a I mean it's it's a basically a system without order. Mm. And what happens in the seventeenth century uh, is that our oh, 18th century? Sorry, the 1700s. When is that they are trying to create an order and trying to say perhaps the middle class children need a specific kind of knowledge, hmm. and and the upper class children a different kind of knowledge, and the lower class children perhaps should only learn the catechism, uh, and then. But since the lower class children actually went to school, which could taught teach them a whole lot others, should we then? make sure that the lower-class children did not go on to the higher schools? Should we have a special control mechanism for that? Mm. And But is that consistent with perhaps that the schools also allowed the children, after that the burial precision was prohibited, they actually allowed the children to, to have uh, school meals in the morning, mm. and school meals in the afternoon, and uh, perhaps a little bite in the middle of the day? And clothing uh, as well? And clothing, yeah. and and uh, the whole reward system is based mm. on not only that you get little symbols for that you're good or bad, but you're also allowed to eat, mm. and and uh, and if you don't f- do your homework properly, you may not get to eat. Mm. So, or you would would not get any any uh, clothing and stuff like that. So, so the system here is clearly oriented towards. I mean, in this disorder and order perspective, mm. they're trying to create an order. And uh, which also meant, for example, that at 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 one political moment, uh, they decided in Stockholm, for example, that uh, the, chi- the all the schools of children should be primarily focused on providing for the lower class children. Mm.
0: And which so then, now you return to, to focusing on children. Yeah. But the question was actually on defocusing children, <laughs> and and but but I'm wondering how is defocusing children. Uh, compatible with a child perspective. Could you explain that a little bit?
1: Well, I'm not sure I can explain it really well, because <laughs> I think that they really re- represent two different ambitions at the same time, uh-huh. and they are partly I- in conflict with each other. I mean, mm. you need to be able to see the complexity. You need to de- defocus children and see the, co- the, the broader context. But then to be able to see the rationale Mm. Of the interaction of children with different institutions, you do have to think about what is what's in it for the child, mm. what's the point, and, and thinking about children as agentic naturally, mm-hmm. uh, and also, but perhaps not agentic in the in the kind of elementary notion that they just action because lack of action is also an action mm-hmm. uh, so we don't have to go into that but but basically trying to understand that that children also have a rationale for their relationship and their the way they act in relationship to institutions of different sides mm-hmm. so you do have to look for for the child perspective on education and perhaps that they Maybe using their educational system for other purposes than was intended, mm-hmm. and that they see things in the educational institution that are not given in the curricula and the ambitions, in the, the systems of governance, or well, ambitions with the educational system itself. So, so mm. I think the child perspective gives something different.
0: Mm. Well, for me, uh, child perspective, if we, if we talk about the child perspective on history. That could mean many things. It it doesn't have to do with, with a genetic child that, that do something. It can be combined with this defocusing the child, looking at the structures that um, affect children, but a child perspective on history actually take that into account. So so I, I, I actually think you do this in, in, in the book very elegantly, Uh, And I really want people to to read it because it's such a fascinating story uh, about both state formation, about the history of childhood, and about schools. And And family. And family, yes. And if we start to round up here, um, conducting research covering this broad time span, as well as focusing on many institutional settings. You haven't looked on one or two or three schools. There are many schools and and also orphanages that you have commented upon and other kinds of institutions. But this broad time span and these many institutional settings, it must have been a, a major methodological logical challenge to do this. Do you have any methodological advices for 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 a younger generation of historians of children, children and childhood?
1: Well, you got me there. I'm not sure. I do have a, a kind of a, a straightforward and simple answer to that question. I can help you. You can help me, please <laughs> do that.
0: That if you do empirical studies of history. Um, Thorough empirical studies, they never grow old. You can reuse them 30 years later.
1: Okay, well, that's <laughs> right. No, no, that's... Uh, well, okay. No, I buy that f- fully out. I mean, I, I think that there is something to... to uh, a lesson to be learned that, that if you do a thorough and carefully d- researched empirical study... Uh, it holds for many generations for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that story is worth telling uh, perhaps more than once and in different languages and stuff like that and And uh, you have to be you have to take that to account when you construct your narrative that it it should be and must be. Narrative, which is based on clarity in terms of theoretical concept and theoretical understandings, Mm. and a a critical, independent relationship to theoretical understandings, Uh, but it should not overshadow the the complexity and the the, uh, nuanced uh, narrative about the empirical uh, and also the empirical material, but also. Given given the fact of l'histoire totale and also defocusing children, mm. uh, you need to to perhaps look outside the material which is very close to children and very close to the family or close to the institutions. You mm. have to see the broader context. Perhaps it is things that goes on in a, another part of society mm. that actually affects what you're studying, and it doesn't have it to have any kind of direct relationship to what you are thinking about. Mm. I mean, in a more modern historical context, when when Sweden changed the tax systems during the 1970s and, and taxed men and women differently in the family, it had great effect on how the whole daycare system developed. Yeah. Uh, And no, and you don't really think about that because if you only look at the pedagogical ideas and the daycare sisters and the rationales of of given the the stated rationales of daycare uh, and and uh, policies around that, you may disregard the fact that the tax system was changed, Mm. which allowed for a different for a a change, which 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 actually is not. Immediately visible if you don't look. Now we all know that, so that's mm. why I'm giving that as an example. So it, it's an open door. It's it's nothing. We all we all know that, but it but it it's still a good example of that.
0: Hmm. So reading your book, I came to think that schooling is a word for many different needs. Do you agree on that?
1: Definitely, schooling 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 is so many different things at the same time. Mm. Uh, and it's about different needs, it's different functions, and it's different uh, roles in society. And, and uh, that in itself uh, is worthwhile taking into account. Mm. And I think the book as a, as a whole definitely brings that out. And therefore, I mean, you may dis- be disappointed if you look in this book only for history of education and a very close reading of history of education, and you'll find a lot of other things than that. And, and perhaps also many examples of, of uh, where school fills functions which seem to be basically unrelated to what you expect schools to be.
0: Mm. Well, thank you so much, Bengt, for having this conversation with me. It was so much fun, and I hope the listeners also enjoy it. Thank well, you.
1: thank you. Thank you for a great structure. Thank you.